Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. And we are live. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me on Leave Your Mark, the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Are you kidding me? You're a dream guest. You've had an amazing career, starting with being co-founder of Guilt Group. Hello. Then co-founder of Glam Squad. And now you're the SVP of Consumer Strategy and Innovation at Allergan. I mean, you have had the most incredible career. And what I find most amazing about you, because we are friends, so that's full disclosure, so I'm totally biased, <laughs> is that you are so humble and modest in everything that you do. I feel like when we had breakfast that day and I was like, you're, you're LinkedIn, like you're not even saying all these things. Like you're so incredibly just gracious in the way that you speak about yourself. And I, I want to just, you know, take it back a little bit and understand sort of where you came from, where you went to school. And like, this is all about career advice. So people who are listening are really sort of on the beginning of their journey. I assume, obviously this is a new podcast, so anyone could listen by all means. But I think it's really important for people to understand like how you started your career because you've come so far and you're not old. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative. But I will first say how much I loved your book. Oh, and thank you. I know I probably wasn't exactly the target audience of reading your book, but I think Leave Your Marks the kind of book you can really read at any stage in your career. And there's so many like helpful tidbits and reminders of things that are helpful to do really at any stage in someone's career. Well, thank you. And vice versa. I loved your book too. So. <laughs> and we did not pay each other. So there, this is not an ad. So you have an incredible pedigree educationally. So talk us through that because it just sounds so amazing to hear. Well, I'm one of those people who I think is a really hard worker. You know, I did have the privilege of going to incredible schools. I went to Harvard undergrad and then worked for three years and then went back to Harvard for my MBA. But I will tell you, I worked my butt off uh, to get into these schools twice. Um, I actually just had my 20th reunion recently at Harvard and it was so much fun. And it was, you know, I appreciated the experience of being there so, so, so much. I made incredible friends. I got to learn every day. And really my my world opened up on kind of a global scale while I was there. So I feel very, very lucky that I was able to go there and then take advantage of so many things the institution has to offer. 
you know, I don't even think it's luck at all, actually. I think, like you said, you worked for it. And I think that that is such a novel idea sometimes right now, especially, you know, with people who are younger than us and starting out in the workforce, because, you know, especially with social media, it almost seems like everything is just really easy. Like you can get famous really quickly. You can start a business really quickly. You can become a billionaire really quickly. And the truth is it takes a lot of hard work, patience, and probably failing a lot also along the way. It takes hard work. And, you know, I don't find that great things just fall into your lap. I I say this to my friends, my team members, now even my family, like, if you don't ask, you don't get, you got to fight for it. Um, and part of that is really knowing what it is you're fighting for. What is your goal? I think I get a little lost when I'm not clear what my goal is, whether it's a professional goal or even a personal goal. So once I set that goal, it's okay if I don't achieve it, but it's really helpful to have that North Star of like, what am I running towards? I love that idea. But also, you know, I don't know how you feel, but I personally feel very uncomfortable usually asking people for anything. Like I am much more comfortable being the one to give any kind of advice, any connection, anything at all. I'll write a check faster than I'll do anything else. But I tend to not want to ask for help when I need help. So when you say that, you know, you think about your goal and then ask for it, how would you advise young people today to sort of learn how to be great negotiators right off the bat? Like, you know, you're getting your first job or your second job or your third job and you're, you know, you get the offer letter. It's like, is that negotiable, that salary? Is that something that you should be like, actually... I'd like a larger number. <laughs> we, we'd all always like a larger number. I think it depends. So if you're, let's say, first job out of college or even a summer internship and it's part of an established program, it's probably not flexible. Um, if you have a little bit of experience, if you have um, value to bring to, not to say people right out of college don't have value, but if you have expertise already in some sort of a skill set, you probably have a little bit more leverage. I think part of the key to negotiating is understanding, do you have leverage or not? When I'm hiring different roles, you know, sometimes it's hard to find people who have a specific expertise. And if they know that, then they probably realize they have more leverage versus if you're looking for someone who is going to fill a more basic role that doesn't necessarily need expertise, they probably don't have much leverage. But but what's the harm in asking? You know, I think if you do it, you strike a balance between being confident, but not cocky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'm hiring someone to do some sort of a role, let's say it's a sales role or a business development role, and they don't negotiate a little bit, I worry what's that person going to be like when they're negotiating on our behalf with some sort of that's a really a, good point. another vendor of some sort. So um, it depends on the role. That's a really good point. Did you do any internships in college? Like, did you already when you graduated, did you already have like a laundry list of experience? Well, it's hard to find internships, I think. So I um, I did have internships and my advice to someone in college right now is just get as much experience as you can. Um, sometimes it's paid, sometimes it's not paid. Obviously, we all want to get paid for work and, and have a little more money in our pockets. But um, those unpaid internships can be really valuable too if you're trying to get certain experience onto your resume. I did an internship uh, between my sophomore and junior year 
working at Fidelity, which I thought sounded good. Fidelity, obviously, well-known institution. My role was so boring and so mundane, but I didn't care because I thought there's probably value in having Fidelity on my resume. My summer, uh, right before I graduated, so my summer between my junior and senior year in college, I worked for Merrill Lynch as a summer analyst, and then I ended up getting a full-time offer after I graduated undergrad and then was there for three years. So that that summer internship was super important and valuable and, and definitely helped me get my first real job. What did you major in? So I'm kind of weird. Um, I created my own undergrad major, um, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> I did and it still exists actually. So I'm very happy about that. But I, it was called Romance Studies and don't think I was like a Daniel Steele or anything like that. It was as in Romance Languages. So it was French, Spanish and Portuguese literature. So you can think of it as like I was an English lit type major, just not in English, in Portuguese, French, and Spanish. Okay, so obviously this is a podcast and it's audio, so no one can see me right now by my mouth. My jaw is on the table because it's <laughs> insane. So wait, so you're at Harvard. This major does not exist. It didn't exist. You could do two languages, but I really wanted to do three because I figured if I only did two, then the third one wouldn't develop and get as good. So you pitched this to who? to the head of the Romance Languages and Literatures Department. Um, Meanwhile, my parents wanted me to study economics. So I had to bargain first with my parents and say, I want to study what I want to study. And if I can pull this off, I promise I'll get an MBA in the future. And I just really didn't want to study economics full time. I just thought that was like, maybe a little, I hate to say this on a podcast, but a little boring. And I already spoke a bunch of languages and I loved reading. Anyway, so I pitched the idea. They thought, wow, if you can actually handle this and stomach this and you're interested and you're advanced enough in the three languages, sure, go for it. They were supportive. And then when I got my first semester of reading, I almost flipped out because I had like 60 books to read, the hardcore literature books in foreign languages. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm really crazy. I don't know what I just did. I don't know how I got through it, but somehow I did. I'm sure I skimmed. (laughs) That's a great example of be careful what you wish for. Yeah, but I loved it. It was fun. It was like a chance to study what I really wanted to study. So how many languages do you actually speak now? Well, I don't use them as much as I'd like, but kind of in in, uh, in order. decreasing order. <laughs> English, Spanish. My mom's actually Cuban, so so the Spanish is, is pretty native. And then I'd say kind of Portuguese, French, and then Italian would be last. Oh, my God. So Even more impressive than I thought. But I can't drive stick shift. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm so glad neither can I. <laughs> That's on the bucket list at some point. I actually don't think it's very important to drive stick shift. Okay, good. So the idea of being an entrepreneur versus working for a company, how did you sort of straddle those two things? Like, when did you decide, like, you know what, I'm not going to do the corporate America. I'm going to start my own thing. So it wasn't that black and white for me. Um, During business school, I really tried so hard to get into an industry that I was passionate about. So my first role out of business school was at Louis Vuitton. Then I worked for Bulgari. Um, So it was a few years working in luxury. In what area? um, Not digital. So it was really the store experience. So at Louis Vuitton, I was in their 
what they called at the time, I don't know if it still exists, the management and training program. Okay. So I wore a Louis Vuitton uniform. I was standing in the stores all day long, waiting on customers. Oh, so full on retail. Full on retail. The first role was at Saks in New York. So I was on the sales floor. And then they moved me to the flagship store. And then I moved into corporate, um, all within the span of about a year and a half. And then from there, moved to Bulgari, where I ran the retail stores and, and reported to the CEO. And that was exciting because I was fairly young. I was still in my late 20s and thought that was so exciting to report directly to a CEO. But I'd say in both roles very quickly, I came to the realization that they looked glamorous, um, but I wasn't really mentally challenged by the actual work that I had to do. And I felt like these were good years for me professionally. Um, I just got married in um, spring of 2007. I didn't have children. I felt these are the years where I can be working around the clock and not feeling guilty. Absolutely. You know, why do I feel a little bit bored? Yeah. I so agree with that. Actually, I tell a lot of people, and this is how I also, I mean, have not achieved nearly what you have, but I felt like I wanted to really, really work my butt off in my 20s so that I'd have a higher title in my 30s when I wanted to have kids and then have more flexibility because I was more senior. Totally agree. And I know your question was kind of getting down the entrepreneurial path, but on that topic, I do believe that being entrepreneurial, whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or you're a founder or you're part of an early stage team or just part of an entrepreneurial company, you have a lot more flexibility. And I think as a parent to young children, being in an entrepreneurial environment is is really helpful and really amazing when you don't have that mandatory face time. And sometimes we all need flexibility. A hundred percent. So as far as launching something on your own, walk us through that process. So I love being part of a team. I'm not a one-man band. I don't really get inspired when I'm by myself. I get inspired when I'm with other people. So for all the startups I've been involved in, I was very much part of a team, a founding team. So at Gilt, we launched in 2007 and we were five co-founders. And one of them was uh, one of my best friends. She still is one of my best friends, Alexis Maybank. Yes. And, you know, at the time... We just had this vision of bringing the excitement of a New York City sample sale online. Um, it was really my first startup venture. I had no idea how hard it was going to be. I also had no idea how quickly it was going to take off. Um, and when I was in that phase of hyper growth, we went from on a quarterly basis, our employees doubled. Um, so we went from one quarter, 25 employees to 50 to 100 to 200 to 400 to 800. It was crazy. That pace is insane. And it's also insane. just as far as just, you know, when you're starting something new that's never been done before. I mean, it's one thing if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to start a business that exists in the world. But that was really the first time that there was the idea of a sample sale online. So where did that nugget of just like inspiration come from? So all the startups that I've been involved in and even what I'm doing now today have all revolved around really understanding firsthand from a consumer perspective, how would I like to shop or how would I like to consume services and what kind of education is relevant to me. So when I was 30 years old and we launched Gilt, I loved designer fashion and did not want to 
pay full price, sort of didn't believe in it, and frankly couldn't really necessarily in all the things that I wanted to buy. And the idea of being able to do that online in a time-saving way, being able to browse quickly and efficiently so many different brands and um, you know SKUs of product was exciting to me. And in all of these ventures that I've been involved in over the years, you know, I'm not alone. I think I'm representative of lots of women and lots of men, um, not only in New York City, but all across the country and, and even in other parts of the world. Um, yes, I would agree with that. And I remember, I don't know why I remember this, and certainly I didn't know you back then, but I remember seeing Serena shop on Guilt on her phone on Gossip Girl. And that was the first time I ever learned I was like, what is this guilt? What it, what What is Serena doing right now on her phone shopping online? And that was a major product placement moment that I'm sure traffic to the site <laughs> must have been off the charts that day. Well, I'm so glad you saw that. I was I'm sure a, a lot of big, people did. <laughs> I, I know. And that was in the heyday of Gossip Girls. So, you know, it was an exciting product placement. And, you know, we all for months I had been saying, oh, if only we could get guilt onto Gossip Girl. It's the perfect demographic. It's the perfect storyline. And, you know, it took a while to figure it out. And I take zero credit for figuring it out. That was all our PR teams and um, marketing teams working on that. I don't actually remember how good the results were. And I think it's probably because they weren't as good as some of the other things that we worked on. So for example, seven months into launching Guilt, we were mentioned, it wasn't me or Alexis on the actual show, but we were mentioned on the TV show, The View. And that was a moment that we'll never forget. That was a turning point in um, kind of the early days of guilt where our membership, because we were a membership model by invitation only, it tripled literally from one day to the next, which on the one hand was so exciting because we weren't really spending money at that point on acquiring new customers. It was really worth of mouth. But then on the other hand, and this is what I was responsible for, it was terrifying because then we needed to get three times as much inventory to satisfy the demand. And that wasn't an easy thing to do from one day to the next. So it's always funny that the activations and the sort of PR moments that happen, the ones that are actually um, successful aren't necessarily the ones that you might predict. I agree with you. I, I also think it's the same with like having a celebrity talk about it versus sometimes like a micro influencer who happens to have a really engaged audience. Like sometimes the celebrity, it's like crickets and then I mean, I'm thinking about even my book launch. Absolutely. Like some celebrities tweeted it and I was like, oh my God, it's going to be sold out. And then I was like, actually, no, 10 copies were sold. And totally. then like some random person posted and you're like, oh, actually that moved the needle. And you know what? To bring it back to careers and thinking about that, when I think of many different introductions that panned out for me in a way that were meaningful, like the, the way I actually ended up kind of getting, I think, my first job as a summer intern at Merrill Lynch, or when I think about even how this Allergan opportunity where I am today came about, it's never through an obvious introduction. It's sort of maybe someone who's not even a close friend or someone you don't know that well. Um, so my advice to your listeners would just be, you know, always 
take an introduction, always take that meeting, even if you don't feel like it, always show up when you get invited to something because you just never know when something could lead to another thing that's really exciting. A hundred percent. And on that note, your network at this point is incredible. How do you sort of keep up with it? How do you keep up with all the people that you know through the course of your career now? Because we all have you know, friends and then colleagues, people we're close with, people we're not as close with, but it's really nice to be able to sort of every once in a while just touch base with certain people. Do you have a, a method in the way that you keep up with people or? So I could talk about this the whole podcast because I love talking about networking. So first and foremost, I would say that it's fun for me. So networking, keeping up with people, keeping my contacts organized, that never feels like a chore. Um, one tool that I think is so important, and I'm sure you, you've talked about this already on the podcast or we'll talk about it in the future, but LinkedIn is so valuable. So I try to check LinkedIn fairly regularly. I mean, if someone sends me a message, obviously I get that fairly instantly. Uh, but sometimes when I'm commuting, I might take a look at pending invitations and they pile up pretty fast. Sort of the bigger your network, the bigger the invitations pile up. And, um, you know, frankly, often many of these people I have never met and probably never will meet. So I don't accept invitations necessarily from total strangers, but I will accept invitations sometimes from someone who I haven't met, but I think is interesting or that I would like to meet. So love LinkedIn. I love keeping my contacts current as much as possible. So when I receive an email from someone telling me they've changed jobs, you know, I I take that extra 30 seconds and keep their email address current. I use tools like WhatsApp and Slack and text and I play on different social media channels and you know, it's it's a lot. These days it's like a fire hose. There's there's email, there's LinkedIn, there's there's a lot, but I do the best that I can. It will make your head spin to know that something happened to my contacts in my iPhone <gasps> where they triplicated. Oh, no. So oh. I have three of every person. And when you update, like if I update your phone number, it only updates in the one file that I just edited. And the other two remain the antiquated information. So... <laughs> Oh my goodness. It is like... feel your torture. It is torturous. Well, you, I mean, you and Alexis and all of your other co-founders, but I I always think of you and Alexis anyway as the main founders of Guilt, um, certainly the front front faces of Guilt. Um, You went from there to then working on Clam Squad. And I remember when you did that. And then that was a total... I mean, obviously, you love playing in digital at this point. This is like where you are. Yeah. Headspace wise. Yes. Um, So Glam Squad was different because it was services and it was leveraging digital to do something that was in someone's home. So that was a fun change. I think for me, when I look through this arc of different changes that I'm making or how my career choices have evolved, I like it when there are differences and changes and nuances where I can learn something different from Mm -hmm. the previous experience. So Glam Squad was all about in-home beauty services. How do you scale quality? And 
you know, it was the first time I was a CEO of something and that was a new experience. We had to fundraise. I didn't have other people to rely on the same way that I did at Guilt where I was the newbie um, in an entrepreneurial environment. So it was an amazing experience. I was there two years. I'm still a shareholder. I still use Glam Squad all the time, use it this morning, still love it, um, but I'm not operationally involved anymore. So when I compare my seven years at Guilt to two years at Glam Squad, you know, they were both incredible experiences and um, had the privilege of working with incredible teams, but they were different on many, many levels. I think for me, I think guilt was so emotional. And I don't know if that was because it was my first time doing a startup. Maybe it was also because we started before I had children and I had other people to really worry about who depend on me. But guilt was very, very emotional. Like I truly felt the ups and the downs, you know, on a daily basis. There was a time frame where I had a migraine. I think it was, it felt like every day, but I think it was probably every other day. I was just so stressed and so committed. And thank goodness I was married because aside from my husband, um, it was like the only thing that I thought about. It was totally all-consuming and you can't do that forever. Do you think that that kind of commitment, that level of commitment and that level of just you're putting your entire life into something is a character trait that is necessary to build anything? Or do you feel like you took it more seriously than others? I mean, were you working like 18-hour days? (laughs) I I picture you were. I mean, I was just obsessed. It was like an addiction. It was so, it was the only thing I wanted to think about and talk about. Um, and I'm sure it was probably boring and painful for those <laughs> around me. I, I not really, honestly, because, because I think those around me were curious about it. But I think passion is so important. You know, when you think about hiring people or early stage teams, whether you're hiring for a big company or something really entrepreneurial, I think passion is something that a person can't really fake. They either have it or they don't. And if they lack passion for the role or the experience or the vision of whatever it is they're working on, you know, I find it hard to believe that that person would be as committed as they could be. So you certainly look for that when you interview people then. I do. I definitely look for passion when I interview people. I have learned over the years and I've worked with career coaches over the years. And so I do know that something I need to be careful of and others need to be careful of too, is that it's human nature to hire someone who might remind you um, of yourself in Mm. some way. And that's dangerous. You don't want a whole team of people who are just like you. You really want to make sure when you're hiring and growing and developing teams that there's balance and that not everybody looks at a problem or a situation the same way. I think diversity on every level, diversity is really important. So, But passion, I think, is is mandatory. And passion can manifest itself in very different ways. A, A passionate marketer is going to look really different from an engineer who's passionate about problem solving. And I think at the end of the day, you want people who are committed, who don't treat work like work. They treat it with pride and they're emotionally invested in whatever it is that they're building. 
What's it like to work for you? What kind of boss are you? I can picture, I think, what you would be like to work for, but I would love to know what you think your team says about you. Oh my gosh, you should ask my team. Um, Well, I would say on the good side, I'm genuine and I really do care about people. I care about their professional development. I really try to understand what motivates them. And I don't know if you believe in Myers-Briggs, but apparently my profile, which is ENFJ, the name of that profile is the mentor. Mm -hmm. So I think that sometimes comes through. I do like to try to mentor people and I appreciate being mentored too on the flip side. Um, On the maybe less positive side, I have a harder time delivering tough messages. And I think even if I'm thinking a tough message, it's harder for me to articulate it. I think I've gotten better with time. Because you're a nice person. Yeah, I, I am, but but it's important to share those tough messages. And I've I've learned that. And sometimes I think that when I ultimately get that tough message out, it might come as a surprise to someone who works with me because they're like, wait, you never mentioned this before. So I tried to really prioritize being transparent. And Mm -hmm. that was something I learned in my last startup, wherever possible. And I believe in transparency. One thing that we do a lot here in what we're building at Allergan is we have surveys after team meetings, after my leadership team meetings. And that's a chance for me to basically ask my team members. And I really hope that everyone fills the surveys out and they usually do. Um, It's a chance for them to say whatever's on their mind based on what happened in that meeting. And I find that sometimes messages get conveyed through that, that might otherwise maybe just sort of get ignored and and I take them seriously and I'll follow up with the person who wrote something in a survey. They're not anonymous and we all get to see them. So I find that really helpful. Is that something that was done at this company prior to you or you instituted that? No, no, not done here at all. So I'm now managing a team of, let's say, 70 people in New York City for Allergan. And our headquarters is in Madison, New Jersey. And we have a huge team in Irvine, California, and it's a global company. Uh, But we do things a little bit differently. So for example, if you come to visit our offices, we're set up like an open plan, more like a tech startup than a corporate environment. You know, I think I'm the only SVP in the company who doesn't have an office. I don't want an office. I, you know, I have my corner fake office um, out with the team. And that's important to me. I think I was most junior in my career when I had the nicest office when I was like a summer analyst. Um, <laughs> that's so ironic. I, oh, and, and I think that's that's important. I think that, you know, I like to be with the team. I'm the same way. And it's fun to get your hands dirty. I think it's important. I mean, I just like the collaboration aspect of it. When you're sitting among everyone, everything happens so much faster rather than being sort of in your little ivory tower. Tell me what you're doing here. You're working on some exciting projects. We are. We are. So we have built... Uh, two different startups that have launched to consumers. The first one we launched is the brand is Spotlight, S-P-O-T-L-Y-T-E. And the website is thespotlight.com. And we're really active on Instagram too. So hopefully your audience will check it out if they're interested in beauty, education, and medical aesthetics. So I mean, who isn't? (laughs) uh, Well, probably your fan base is totally interested in that. So that's good. (laughs) Um, And what we're doing really is 
um, educating consumers on all things beauty. So that can be makeup and skincare, um, but also medical aesthetics. So there might be consumers out there who are thinking about wrinkles that they might never have noticed before, or they could be thinking about sunspots or um, gray hairs or you name it, any kind of type of beauty related um, concern that they might have. And Spotlight is a place where they can read really interesting articles written by some of the best writers in the beauty industry, where we interview experts. So we interview plastic surgeons and dermatologists and all kinds of beauty experts, uh, you know, some some well-known names in the beauty industry and some maybe up and coming. And then we also interview influencers, uh, different types of influencers, some celebrities, some founders, you name it. And um, we get a lot of different perspectives on what people's beauty routines are, what advice they have to give. Even though we are owned by Allergan, it's an unbranded site, which means that you don't really see mentions of the drugs and devices that we own. Um, we speak generally about the topics of uh, injectable wrinkle reducers and injectable fillers. So it has, I guess, very much an editorial point of view. Yes. Editorial point of view. We have a live chat, which is a really great functionality. So if you have any questions in the beauty sphere, medical aesthetic sphere, you can speak with a trained aesthetic specialist um, in a private capacity. It's not a robot, real person. They're awesome. And you can ask any kind of question and they give great answers and um, can really guide consumers to begin their medical aesthetics journey. Yes. It's like, how long should my Botox last? <laughs> That's definitely a question that they're used to answering. Depends how much you smile. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and tell me about Reggie. So Reggie is exciting. Um, so the website is tryreggie.com, short for regimen. And oh, I didn't realize that. Yes, short for regimen. We thought, you know, what's your Reggie? What's my Reggie? Um, Reggie is a marketplace online where consumers can discover curated beauty treatments as well as medical aesthetics treatments in New York City and Los Angeles and several cities coming soon after that. And it really saves time. I mean, the way I use it is I text the Reggie concierge and I might say anything from I need a manicure this evening and will suggest a neighborhood um, such as near my office or near where I live. And can you let me know? And within minutes, they get back to me and will book an appointment for me. Um, so it's everything from things like manicures to very advanced facials with all kinds of bells and whistles um, to medical aesthetics treatments at some of the top dermatologists and plastic surgeons offices. And uh, it's really an amazing consumer experience. I mean, it sounds like having a personal assistant. It is. It's like your personal assistant for beauty. Like all your appointments, which by the way, they're so annoying to make. Like there are times, I mean, every time you call any single office, it's like, can I place you on a brief hold? It's like, okay, yep, yep. nothing was brief about that. Nothing. And we're in an open plan. So you can't book things on the phone um, comfortably. So it's so easy to text someone. And, you know, a lot of times you're not necessarily in a rush. You might be, you might not be. That's a really um, good point, actually. So, yes, yeah, so you can have, you can be in a meeting and, and um, some idea of some beauty need you might have or you might feel very wrinkled that day. And, like, let me speak to my Reggie concierge and um, address my beauty issues. Oh my God. So amazing. 
I mean, you pack such a punch in your day. You're a mom as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I imagine there's certain things you read every morning, certain publications you read every morning. What are your go-to? Like, you wake up in the morning. Do you drink coffee? Please say I yes. do. I do. You know, I, I actually like to drink it in the office, so it's not the first thing I do. I try to drink some water. I do that, too, but it would be my second cup in the office. I know. I do that, too, but then I'm trying to cut back, so it depends. Sometimes one or two cups of coffee. Uh, but my husband works on a trading floor, so he has always been up and at him very early. So our house is like a raging party by 6.15, which is intense. We go to bed early, but we're up and at them um, quite early. And it's a little hectic, but we, we make it work. I like to try to drop off one of my two children at school. Um, and then uh, sometimes I'll sneak in a breakfast meeting like you and I did a few weeks ago. But usually I'll make it into the office fairly early and every day is different. Um, sometimes I travel. This week I'm not traveling. But next week, for example, I'm kind of on the road the whole week. So it just depends. So what do you read? What do you oh, that up? was your question. What do I read? I'm so sorry. It's okay. Um, so I usually read... On my commute, so after I've dropped my kid off at school, I will go through many emails. So I usually oversubscribe to things. I don't always read every word of everything I subscribe to, but you know, things from um, I love all the different Fortune publications. I read The Skim. I can't help read The New York Post. Of course, I read The New York Times. I still subscribe to all the big fashion sites, websites, mm-hmm. e-commerce. So I, I wouldn't say I browse them, but I usually read the headline yeah. and maybe we'll take a peek so I get a sense of what's in style. Um, love Women's Wear Daily. Um, read that. And sometimes I'm doing this while simultaneously listening to a podcast. Oh, so wow. it's like media coming at me from all angles, <laughs> which is a lot. You know, I feel like I'm always drinking from a fire hose of information. I think, though, I mean, in your role, you have to be tapped into everything. Yeah, you want. Oh, and then since taking this role, then I'm starting to read um, pieces in the pharmaceutical industry. So that's new, too. And that I feel like I have to pay more attention to. So the fierce pharmas of the world, you know, what's going on. And it's not sort of second nature um, the way beauty and fashion had been previously. I actually have to read and sometimes Google things that I'm reading so that I can get up to speed. Well, something tells me that if you're reading Portuguese literature, then you can probably read a pharmaceutical article. It's different, but yes, I'm <laughs> learning. I've learned a ton. <laughs> what are you most excited about coming up? Like, is there something in the future that you're excited about? Or is there a project you'd love to do one day? Like, you don't sit still, so I'm sure you have something cooking. Yeah, it's such a good question. Maybe you can help me think of that. I think I'm just so busy right now in the moment that I, which is good. Um, so I'm not sort of pining away, dreaming about Um, something for the future. I think that we have our hands full in a great way in terms of what we're building and what we're doing uh, within Allergan. I still care about entrepreneurs. I'll meet with them once in a while. And, you know, I feel like that's my way of giving back. Um, So I, I try to squeeze that in sometimes. You know, I think way, way into the future, I can see myself sitting on a few public boards or something like that, but um, which I've done, I've done that a little bit of that in the past. But right now I'm, I'm enjoying the moment, which is not always something I do. I'm, I'm usually forward looking, but it's really nice to kind of be in the moment. Today. I think that's amazing. And I know you will bring value to whatever you do because you're 
amazing at what you do and you're just wonderful to be with and work with and i thank you so much for joining me on leave your mark the podcast i always love seeing you thank you for having me it was so much fun my pleasure thanks so much for listening to leave your mark the podcast if you want more career advice be sure to pick up my best-selling book leave your mark if you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter blackboard you can do so on elisalick.com be sure to follow me on Instagram at ElisaLichtXO or reach out on Twitter at ElisaLicht. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.